Welcome to episode 77 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand papermaking and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand papermaking studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and papermaking masterclasses here in the studio, and I teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Amy Richard, a native of Miami, Florida. After working for many years as an artist, illustrator, science writer, and educator, a fascination with hand papermaking processes led her to complete an MFA in book arts at the University of Iowa in 2016. Her focus was on Japanese-style papermaking, along with the history, traditions, and the spiritual and healing aspects of the practice. Heavily influenced by the cycles of life, much of Richard's work is a response to the metaphysical energy exhibited in nature, particularly within the detritus or relics that remain after life is gone. Using the inner bark bast fibers from specific plants, Richard strives to capture nature's vibrancy in her sculptures, prints, paintings, and artist books. Enjoy our conversation. Well, Amy Richard, welcome to Paper Talk. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you are in Florida now, right? Yes, Gainesville, I, Florida. Uh-huh. And I think you grew up there. So tell me a little bit about your creative life as a child. <laughs> okay. Um, I was born in Miami and uh-huh. one of the, probably one of the, there's not very many native Miamians running around. So, um, but I'm glad to be one of them. Uh-huh. Um, I grew up a couple miles from this, this wonderful little beach called Matheson hammock. It's, uh, we used to ride my bike through the mangrove forest to get to the, the water and uh-huh. where we could snorkel and fish and hang out. Um, so that was kind of my happy place when I was down there. Um, my father was a, an artist um, and, and also worked at the University of Miami, um, started off in the print shop and worked his way up to the director of publications. Um, so that was very influential. Um, and my mother was a musician, so I had lots, just a lot of art in the house and, and, uh, that kind of thing. Um, my best friend's mother was a, was a painter and I kind of fell in love with painting going over to her house. Her mother would let me cut loose on canvas with oil paints and so forth. And my friend kept trying to get me to come play outside. And I was like, no, no, I want to do this painting. Um, um, so that was kind of interesting that I, even though, my, I mean, my father was an artist as well, but anyhow. Did um, your father show his work or he did, did he, he paint? Yes, he did. Uh-huh. Um, he did um, oil paintings, um, a lot of figurative work, some landscapes. It was very abstract. He just, um, it was years later that I really have gained a, a much deeper understanding of his work and appreciation. Um, sure. You know, when you're in the same household. Um, just what he does. Yeah. It's just what he does, you know, <laughs> but later in life. And then when I read, I started reading a lot of some of the things, his, his writings about his work and, and, and so forth. And I've just really gained a, a much greater appreciation for it. Um, so. Right, right. So there was that. And then, but then I was also very, academically inclined and I was a voracious reader. I'd spend hours up in a tree reading books. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so I kind of had that background when I went to college, I was very focused on, um, on the academic part of it. I had a kind of a mentor down the street that I used to babysit for. And he had me convinced that computers were, were the wave of the future. And that if I wanted financial stability, I should go into computer science. So, uh-huh. And so where did you go to college? Yeah. So I had a little bit of an interesting, uh, I married, a uh, at 17, uh-huh. um, a handsome young man that, uh, was related to some people that lived down the street. I met him on a fishing trip and I tell people I married the first man that took me fishing and it's pretty true. <laughs> and you're still married today. And we're still married 41 years later. Yay. So, yeah. um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I 
I married him, packed everything up I had in the back of his El Camino. And we drove back to Texas. He was living in Port Arthur, Texas at the time and working at Lamar University, which is this little commuter college in Southeast Texas, just a few miles from the, uh, maybe 30 miles from the Louisiana border, maybe a little more. Um, but it's this, it's this really, again, thinking back, it really had a major influence because it was just kind of strange little liberal arts college in the middle of a bunch of refineries. Um, but Jerry Newman was there. He was a, a painter of some renown and he was Texas state artist a number of years ago, a wildlife artist. Um, and he taught Paul Manus and John Alexander, um, some painters that have been, that are, did quite well up in New York with their work in the museum of modern art and all kinds mm -hmm, of stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, so it just was a hell of a little art department there and that there's a little really neat little arts community. So I was really heavily influenced by that. Um, and I, but I started off as a computer science major. <laughs> um, and for that first year, I kept going to these classes and I was like the only girl in the class. And these guys all come in with, you know, with going to class with briefcases and, and I just didn't feel like I really fit in. I could do the work, but, um, but then a, a friend of ours, this guy named Kelly Asbury was studying with Jerry Newman. He went on to Cal arts and ended up being a major animator for major films. Um, he worked on the Roger Rabbit film. He worked on, he was art director for James and the Giant Peach, all kinds of stuff. Anyhow, he talked me into taking a drawing class with Jerry Newman. And um, it was a life drawing class. He said, don't even mess with drawing one. Just, just take life drawing where you draw from the figure. He said, that's where you really learn how to draw. And I walked in the room and I saw these big, like Ruben-esque, beautiful drawings on the wall that other students had made. And I was like, nope. <laughs> I just turned around, walked right out of the class. And literally ran into Jerry, who was ambling down the hall to class. And he turned me around, pushed me back in the classroom. And um, so much to Joe's horror, I learned that I could actually change my major. I didn't know you could do that. Um, uh -huh. So I went from a computer science major um, and changed my major to fine art. <laughs> so... Um, Right. Wow. Um, well, did you know I grew up in Bryan College Station? So I didn't. We I were didn't. kind of not too far away from each yeah. other. I've never heard of Lamar College. Lamar University. Lamar University. It used to be called Lamar Tech. Okay. Because um, it was like a, a tech school or whatever. But I mean, Ro Robert Rauschenberg's from Port Arthur, which is where we lived the first six months we were married. Janice Joplin apparently went to school there and studied music. Yeah. Raised hell, got kicked out of every bar there. Uh -huh. and. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, there's some fun stories. Yeah. Yeah. And what was Joe teaching? He was not teaching. He's okay. a, he's a journalist and outdoor writer and photographer. Okay. So he was working at the university um, in the public affairs news okay. department. Okay. So he was doing um, press releases about things going on at the university. But okay. um, yeah. So when he wasn't at work, he was um, in the boat on the Gulf fishing. And so we, so, and I was with them most of the time um, when I wasn't in the studio. So a bunch of my early work was I would set up these elaborate fish still lifes with, with fresh fish mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of aquatic, a lot of aquatic, aquatic imagery and so forth. Um, you know. Okay. So one, you were drawing and painting. Drawing and painting. Yep. Uh -huh, and, uh -huh. and then toward, I think it was my senior year at Lamar. Um, an artist from North Texas in Denton mm -hmm. um, named Carl Umloff. Did you know that name? You recognize I just name? read your reference to him, but okay. uh, no. He did these big monumental pieces out of paper. Mm -hmm. And it was like, cast, I mean, it was, they were this, they were six inches thick. This wow. is, and they looked and they were, and then he would swipe, uh, I guess he was um, casting onto he might've been doing clay and then casting somehow casting onto that. But it looked like they look like these big, beautiful slabs of stone, oh. like, like, and, and deep um, scratches and marring, like, you know, like aged stone from the desert or something. And they were, and then he airbrushed them or whatever with, I'm not sure. I actually, I don't remember how he, what his color system was, but they were pigmented with these like kind of metallic, Numbers and 
reds and blues and oh they were just incredible so i think that was probably my first exposure to seeing artwork done with paper and this was the early 80s yes uh-huh yeah it was like okay. 83 or something like that or 84 right um, yeah and then so so i got my bfa there um dabbled in sculpture a little bit i actually my senior year i ended up doing a, a pretty big sculpture installation project which was kind of funny uh, when I think back. Um, and then Joe was offered a job as an editor of a, a major fishing magazine in Houston. So we moved to Houston. Um, so that was quite an adjustment. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and I had our oldest son. Um, I got pregnant during my senior year of college. And so I had Ian six weeks before I graduated. So I was in Houston, didn't know anybody with a little precious little baby. Uh -huh. And um took me a few years to kind of find my way and I got and started getting involved in Houston, in the Houston art scene. And um started, I was teaching um drawing at the Glassell School, which is part of the Museum of Fine Arts there. And so my 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 introduction to papermaking was I had a, a drawing class that I had to teach, and they told me I was going to be in a different room that day. And I went in there and there was water everywhere. There was water on the tables, on the floor. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> I was kind of annoyed. And, um, but then I met Kathy Hunt, um, who was teaching papermaking there. Right. And she was trying to smooth my feathers down a little bit, maybe, or something. And <laughs> said, um, yeah, why don't you, I'm doing a workshop this weekend. Why don't you come, you know, show mm -hmm. you about papermaking. Mm -hmm. And um, man, yeah, just, took that little workshop and um, was really excited about it and um, started trying it on my own. And I, I ordered pulp, I think from twin rocker and, and I didn't know any better. So I dyed it with Ritz dye. <laughs> and I was, so I tried making these big pulp paintings with um, a fish still lifes. I still uh -huh. have one of them. Uh -huh. And, um, and then I remember thinking, good Lord, this is a lot of work. <laughs> it's like, this is like cleaning my house and painting at the same time. Like, what do I, what do I want to do this for? Yeah. Um, so I kind of set it aside. It's just, uh -huh. I was just overwhelmed. It's just like, man, this is too much. Um, but then it just kept coming back. I just, I'd be working on paintings and ideas just kind of kept coming back. I started kind of thinking about paper. Right. And yeah. So, and so then, uh, how, what brought you back to paper ultimately? Um, I, that's the part of the puzzle that I can't, <laughs> I can't remember exactly what happened. I just, I just think I just, um, oh, we ended up moving. Yeah. So we moved down to Port O'Connor, down the Texas coast, down near Corpus and, mm -hmm. um, and I finally had my own studio. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's kind of when it, when it started happening where I just, I really had the space and, uh, oh, and the kids had started school at the same time. So that right. probably had something to do with it too. So suddenly I had space and time. Yeah. And, um, and so then I started delving into it. I remember calling twin rocker and asking tons of questions. And, um, I was making, um, I started making fish molds off of, off of these big fish that we were catching. Uh, I learned a recipe from a taxidermist. I had to make mix Bondo and fiberglass resin to make these big molds. Oh, so yeah. I started making castings of these big fish forms. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah. So then it, and then I, I started realizing I was, I was, I'd been doing these big kind of marine scapes and oil paint and then, and then watercolor. And I started realizing that my work was, more and more, every I, I started doing um, what I call portraits. I, I kept just kind of honing in on these forms, like a certain seashell with this beautiful spiral in it. And so I would do a painting of just a shell by itself and mm -hmm. start doing these kind of studies of the form. So I finally clued in that I was, I was just really interested in the, in the, in the form itself and the texture and so forth. And, um, and I was subscribing to hand paper making Mm -hmm. and seeing articles by you and other people and mm -hmm. um, got really excited about it and uh, and then started taking workshops. I, 
I did a workshop or attended a workshop. Um, Chris Catrone, is that the right name? Patron, Patron. Okay. And um, at the women's studio. A women's studio. Yeah, women's studio. And then I took your workshop at Penland and that just, just blew me away. So that opened a lot of doors, like for giving me an outlet. Um, And that the way you were working with high shrinkage pulp, I just, I just was fascinated by that. And I still am. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's, that's the really exciting part for me and working with paper is not knowing what it's going to do and letting it tell me what it wants to do and then trying to kind of work with it. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great workshop. I think that was 2009. Yes. Um, Right. And, and so were you pretty much, were you working just on your own, pretty isolated and starting to find your way into the paper community? I know that were you exhibiting or doing anything like that? No, no? I wasn't. I just, Mm -hmm. I was working, I was working full time at the university of Florida. I was a, uh, education coordinator and science writer. And, um, okay. So you moved and, to flo- back to Florida. Yeah. we Yeah. Point. Sorry. Somewhere in there we moved, <laughs> uh, and in 96, okay. we moved back to Florida. I mean, we moved yeah back to Florida. Um, and yeah, so had two young boys and husband and you know, whatever. So I started yeah. working at the, at the university and just, that was just taking up all my time. Mm-hmm. I rented a, I found this little cabin um a colleague of mine had a farm 15 miles at, out out of Gainesville and he um or it was his neighbor that had this little cabin and they rented it to me so that I could so I was just trying to kind of keep my art alive right right <laughs> you know just just whatever I could do so I, I'd, I'd sneak a few hours after work a couple days a couple evenings a week or a Saturday Joe would have the boys and I'd go work for a day out there. And mm-hmm. so I was just kind of trying to keep it, keep it alive and keep it moving. And then as the, as the guys got older and more independent, and um, then I started, but I was still, the, the paper stuff was just still kind of very experimental. Uh-huh. I, I couldn't seem to get it. I just kept doing these little experiments, but I never had enough time to, to actually take it all the way. Right. Right. And I think that's what that was my impetus for, for going to grad school. Cause I just couldn't seem to, I had all these ideas and kept doing all these little experiments, but I couldn't focus them into this, you know, just get it all the way to a, to an end point where I wanted to, to go. Right. So then you did end up going to grad school at the university of Iowa. And I want to hear a little bit about um, your thinking behind that, like where that was going to take you or are you just still kind of, I think you had to quit your job and move away from I your did. husband. And, you know. Well, he went with me, thank goodness. Oh, um, he did. Okay. He did. Yeah. Cause it was yeah, three years. Right. It was a that's commitment. Right. It was, okay. and it was a long way from Gainesville. Um, yeah. Yeah. As we're talking, I, I just had the memory of actually it was in Port O'Connor, this little coastal town in Texas. I had the studio. I was finally, I was making work that there I was showing. I had, uh-huh. numerous shows in Galveston and Houston and, they, and the work was comprised of like pastels of birds, um, these big, big colorful pastels of, of coastal bird forms and shells and marine scapes and stuff like that. Um, but then I started delving and that was when I started delving into the paper and was doing the casting. And I just, I just literally, I remember standing there in the studio one day and going, I need more information. Like I'm, I'm uh-huh. in this vacuum. Right. I just don't have enough information. And so the plan was when we were going to move to Florida um, that I was going to try to go to grad school once we got to Florida. Okay. And um, so that would have, that was in 96. Uh-huh. Um, I was actually poised to go to grad school before I got pregnant in 1984. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's been one of these goals that just kind of kept being moved down the road. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, turns out it's just fine. Yeah. But um so yeah, I remember having that thought. We moved to Florida. It was a whole different ball game. You know, took full time job. It just took put put it on hold again. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and so um, and then and so that was the it was twenty. Um, my dad passed in twenty eleven, and I and I I use that as a benchmark as well. Mm-hmm. 
because that had a really profound effect on me. And, um, and he, you know, was a wonderful father, raised four children. And, um, but I saw him never quite able to bring his work to the point that he wanted it to go to. Mm -hmm. And it was just one of those moments where I just thought, you know, (laughs) now or never. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I applied to uh, University of Iowa and, um, and then, and actually applied for the sculpture program at the University of Florida. Uh-huh. And I thought, cause I was going to, I was like, okay, I'll, if I can, I'll cut my hours back to half time and it'd be really, really convenient to get a degree right here at the university where I work. And, um, but I didn't get in uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, there, there, sculpture department it was it was really highly conceptual work and I don't know I just didn't get in right and then but then I got accepted the University of Iowa and which was my dream that was my breach goal mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then I thought oh no there's just no way mm-hmm. I mean I was thrilled you know and then I was like well that's just too much like again I couldn't figure out how to make it work mm-hmm. um for one thing I couldn't envision my husband being that far from the coast for three years. Right. But we, we worked it out, but, um, but I, I'll share the, the hamster wheel speech with you that my 24 year old son gave me at the time we were sitting on the back porch one evening and he sat down next to me and said, well, going to Iowa. I was like, no, I don't see, it's just not possible. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and he said, mom, for the last 25 years, you've been a hamster wheel. You've been a hamster in a cage on a hamster wheel. <clears throat> the door just opened. <laughs> <laughs> he said, every second, every minute that you doubt yourself that you can't do it, that door is slowly closing. Aww. And once it closes, it's probably not going to open again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's what I said. Still that in him too. I know. And so, so he just, and he just looked at me and said, you got to do this, ma. You know, it's just like, we'll figure it out. We'll help. We'll help you figure it out. Right. Okay. And they did. I mean, we just all figured it out. So Uh it was just, I just kind of marvel at that, at how, you know, I put this goal off for all these years and then how much easier it was when I had the moral support of my kids and my husband. (laughs) Yeah. So what years were you in Iowa? That was 2013 to 2016. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. August 2013 to May 2016. Um, so yeah, so it was three years and, um, and it's just, I mean, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was also just magical. I can't mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. use that word, probably overuse that word, but um, it's a, it's an incredible environment there. Um, the, the faculty works yeah. together. There's a sense of community there that I hadn't ever seen before, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really amazing. And so what did you focus on there? So my focus was, um, I, I mean, it seemed kind of odd because it's the center for the book and I wasn't clearly wasn't a book artist, but mm-hmm. the, that's the thing that's so wonderful about that program is they, they just really helped you develop whatever direction you're interested in these practices or materials and whatnot. So, so my goal was to, was to learn as much as I could about handmade paper and figure out a way to translate it into the forms that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I just, I was after, I was hungry for information and I was hungry for uninterrupted time. Mm-hmm. So that was the other thing that I just, I just kept realizing that as long as I just only gave myself a few hours here and there, nothing was going to happen. I couldn't get it. I couldn't right. get my work far enough along. And I kept, you know, kind of beat myself up over it thinking, you know, I didn't have enough discipline or this and that reason why the work wasn't further along, but it, it's just what it took. It's what it took for me is to have that, that really focused time. Right. Yeah. Develop, develop ideas and, and work. Uh huh. So uh, tell me about your work. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I think the other thing that, that grad school did was there was, there's a really strong regimen of, of reading and studying mm-hmm. the history of the book, the history of these processes and so forth. 
Right. Um, so that was as much of an influence as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it helped me get better at articulating on talking about my work. So it's, um, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very interested in some of the things I talked about earlier, but one of the other realizations is that the forms that I kept kind of coming back to are these forms that are um, kind of what I call natural relics, things that have been tossed aside, um, old seashells, old egg casings, um, things, things that are found in nature where there was something living in it before and now it's gone. Mm-hmm. So, and I know that, I mean, that's a universal theme in a lot of artists work. Um, and so, but that's, that's definitely a big part of my interest in it. Um, and so I love making sculptural forms of and kind of mimicking this. I, I, I'm not interested in trying to make them scientifically accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, Isabel Barbuza was one of the artist there in the art department. And she said, she was coaching me on my thesis work. She said, you know, it's not about trying to make something look exactly like it does in nature. She said, you know, you don't want to replicate nature, but you want to, you want to make poetry about it. And that Mm -hmm. really helped me Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. let go of, I mean, part of my process as I get really fascinated is how, how to kind of mimic nature a little bit or try to, um, try to get the paper to suggest things that I wanted to suggest that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to get wrapped up into, you know, just like drawing a form instead of, you know, trying to make some scientifically accurate representation of a form, you know, make poetry of it. Yeah. Speak, you know, I love that. S- yeah. Just celebrate yeah. it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a really personal interpretation. So, um, so yeah, my work is comprised of, I make these, um, these pulp prints um, on, on the translucent paper. I'm really fascinated by that. I mean, I love the, I love the pulp printing process that, that a lot of people are doing, you know, on, on Western kind of European fibers, but I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the translucency of the Asian fibers. So that mm-hmm. was, um, that was the, a big impetus um, for, for studying in particular, you know, Tim Barrett was there and, um, um, that was, that was the other, other part of it. Um, so, and that, I guess we haven't talked about that. It just reminded me that, um, yeah, it was, it was the Japanese paper making facet that was one of the major motivators for going there. Um, and, um, right. There's a, a funny little story about that where I, we moved in, we moved to Gainesville four years later, we bought a house, our first house, over on the east northeast side of Gainesville, a couple miles north of campus. And, you know, first time homeowner and we want our yard to look nice or whatever. And there was this little plant that kept popping up all over the yard with these little fuzzy leaves. Mm-hmm. And I kept mowing it and, <laughs> and it just kept showing up. And um and then about the same time I was working at the Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants, throughout developing curriculum about invasive plants and um, found out that that was the paper mulberry, which was a category two invasive. So I got really aggressive with it. Um, and then <clears throat> that the next summer or a few summers later, we had string of hurricanes come through. Turns out we have this, I didn't even realize it because it was so big, but there was this cluster of like five Kozo or, or paper mulberry trees growing right off my studio here. Uh-huh. Um, and during the storm, it was coming down. They have a shallow root system. So the whole thing was, this cluster of trees was coming down. The wind was picking it up and it was slamming against the side of the studio door and the side of the house. And um, so we had to cut it out during the eye of the hurricane, cut it down with chainsaws and this and that. Four months later, I was given Tim Barrett's book for Christmas and opened to the first page. And there was that leaf that I had been killing aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> the very thing that I wanted to learn to make paper from. Right. And so, um, so I kind of took that as a sign. Right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that maybe I should learn to do this. Um, so. Yeah. Another- so talk just a little bit about invasives and how like 
Kozo got to Florida, what you know about it. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know exactly when it arrived, but they, they know that paper mulberry is a common name. It's, it's Brucinetia papyrifera is the scientific name. Um, so paper mulberry is a common name. Kozo in Japan, it's a common name for this yeah. plant. Um, they know that it arrived in the U.S. in the, in the late 1700s. So it's in some places it's considered, quote, naturalized because it's been around. But, um, but yeah, it's it's. Um, it can cause some real problems, um, particularly in our climate. We have a, a subtropical climate here, and um, and it can it can take over several acres and just become a monoculture. Right. It just it shades out, and because it spreads via rhizomes underground, and that's why those little shooters were were popping up all around. Turns out there's a mother tree that's um, three doors down, and that's where these vines, uh-huh. these rhizomes, were coming and popping up. Right. And the, the scientific literature said that these rhizomes spread about 30 to 40 feet. Well, when I was telling the guys that the faculty that I worked with, these, these guys that were in the, at the Center for Aquatic Plants, he came over and took, took a look and he said, well, we're going to have to change the literature because that's clearly 100 feet. <laughs> and uh-huh. and so, so these things have long tendrils. Um, and so, so yeah, I... I actually wrote an article for hand paper making. I think it was in 2010 mm-hmm. about being conflicted because this is the plant that I love the most now. And, you know, should I let it grow in my yard you know, <laughs> or should I cut them all down, uh-huh. make paper and then just ignore it after that. Um, so, um, so it, it's a difficult thing. I, so what the, the decision I ultimately made is I can't even, I can't keep it from coming into my yard, even if I tried, because it's coming from different sources. So I, I actually cultivated in my yard. I, I control mm-hmm. it everywhere else. And I have this one plot that I allow it to grow. Um, and then we harvest it elsewhere. We have um, a couple locations where people let us harvest it. And um, in those situations, we'll, we'll go through and harvest just as much as we can. And then they can come in afterwards with a bush hog and grind it and get rid of the, you know, the base of the root or whatever. And if it's, if it's maintained, if you keep mowing, they tend to stay, they tend to stay down because you're Uh keeping it under control or whatever. Right. Um, But I, I was starting to get uncomfortable where I was hearing discussions that the, you know, Dard Hunter, just now North American papermakers and, you know, these different papermaking conferences and workshops I was going to where people were saying, yeah, I took a cutting and I'm going to take it and introduce it to this state or that state. And I was just cringing because uh-huh. particularly Southern states, because right. it, Takes I think over. the, I think the climate um, really does a lot, goes a long way to control it in Northern, some of the Northern climates, but still it was just, you know, I just spent eight years developing curriculum about the danger, the, the damage that invasive plants can do. Right. And then here I am cultivating it at my own yard. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was written as a, unfortunately I kind of got this reputation as, Oh, you're the woman that hates paper mulberry or hates Kozo. <laughs> and it's like, no, I just want to, it's just a voice of caution. Yeah. I just want to um, yeah. caution people to think about what they do, or if you grow it, grow it in a contained uh, some sort of containment or something. Um, right. Yeah. Ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to tell you about the paper advisor, a place where you can discover my most popular paper making and paper craft resources, including information about tools and supplies, how to videos and paper tips all in one place. You can ask the paper advisor, your paper questions there too. And best of all, it's free. Find the Paper Advisor by going to HelenHebertStudio.com and looking for the free Paper Advisor link in the upper right-hand corner. Now back to the episode. So you finished in Iowa and came back home. Did you rent your house out while you were gone? Or you we did. did. We, yeah. Okay. We have a uh, we have a small apartment above my studio. So we put anything that we didn't want in uh-huh. the rest of the house. We put that upstairs. 
rented the house, furnished, mm-hmm. found, you know, like it was kind of a miracle, found this wonderful person to rent the house. She was here for three years. She oh, even took nice. care of our cat. Nice. <laughs> so we had like this 13 year old cat. There's oh. no way. And it was a, a stray cat that kind of adopted yeah. us. Yeah. And so, um, so she took care of the kitty while we were gone and, um, and that worked out well. Um, so yeah, came back, took, took six months or a year to just kind of readjust, let the dust settle. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was a pretty, that's a pretty major adjustment after something like that. It's, um, but figured it out. Um, right. So tell me what you're doing now. Um, so you've been back five years. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess after after we got back, we did a, uh, took me about six months just to get the, cause a lot of stuff was stored in the studio while we were gone. So right. it took months to get that. Yeah. So got got studio set up, organized and, um, started teaching, um, out of the studio doing small workshops and so forth. Um, got involved in, um, and there's a organization. It's, it's a nationwide organization. And this is the Florida chapter. It's called arts for all. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's out of the Kennedy Center in New York, but it's this organization that um, pays artists to teach individuals with disabilities, either children with learning disabilities or at-risk youth or adults with some sort of physical disability uh, or challenge, physical challenge. And, um, and so I, I had some fun with that, developing this little portable paper studio where I could get everything on this one cart uh-huh. and take it into the classroom and teach kids um, paper making. Um, yeah. A lot of a lot of the students were on the spectrum with autism or Asperger or had some sort of you know learning challenge or whatever. And um, it was it was it's been that was really rewarding work. Um, yeah, and was that like? Uh... Uh, did you go several times or just one time to each group or what was? Oh yeah. I went several times. So Uh there was a certain set number of hours. So I'd go repeatedly Mm -hmm. like every week for a month or something like that. And each time we do something different with, with paper. And I, and I, I chose, I mean, I could have done other processes, but I just really chose to work with paper. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I've got, you know, I'm happy to share that if I can find the photo of my little portable paper studio. Yeah, um, we'll a, talk about, I want to talk about some of your recommendations at the end, but okay. um, yeah. just kind of tell me, I know you do an annual Kozo harvest. And, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've started doing that. Um, some, I, I didn't, I didn't invite the public last year because of health COVID. Health COVID reasons yeah. or whatever, but yeah, I do an annual Kozo harvest, except I do it in January. We have to, the Kozo doesn't lose its leaves until, um, late December, if we're lucky or January, which is quite different in, in, in Cleveland at the Morgan and in Iowa, they do it in November. Right. Um, But yeah, so I do that and I've been teaching uh, workshops here at my studio. I was teaching, um, doing some teaching as an adjunct at the university of Florida um, over there. Um, So trying to paper making paper making. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Do they Um, have a facility or did you bring stuff in? I have, I had to pretty much bring, move my, you know, most of my paper studio there Okay. <laughs> for, um, and so, but they were really great about it. And, uh, there's, uh, there's an off-campus satellite location called the Warp House, um, where they all, all their first year students have to go through this program. And, um, so it was, it was a great facility. So I'm hoping to, to, uh, do that again. I was all set. We, I had a, was supposed to have been teaching a class, um, this spring and then, um, last spring had a month long artist residency and then COVID canceled all of it literally mm. the day after I gave my artist talk. So, wow. yeah. so trying to kind of regroup. Um, yeah. but since then I've, um, I've had my eyes opened about the possibilities of teaching online, mm-hmm. which you've been doing for a long time. And, um, yeah, but I have not taught paper making online. So <laughs> okay, yeah, right. you're one of the few. Yeah, well, there's there's a number of us out there doing yeah. it, but um, but yeah, this uh, this group that inquired um, out of Taiwan to see if I would teach Japanese paper making online, and at first I thought, oh, there's no way, oh, there's no way, 
<laughs> and then I started thinking about it and, um, and figured it out. And, um, uh -huh. so I just, um, this week I'm completing my net, my, uh, second class of Japanese papermaking. And, uh, and I've got another one scheduled for November. Um, and this is a class that anyone can sign up for around exact, the world. Around the world, yep. It's, it's um, pre-recorded videos, but you have some live portions too? or Yes. So okay. I've got really detailed. It took me months to put together the material, yeah. but I've got really detailed um, like PowerPoint lessons or presentations that are presented as in a PDF. But it, I mean, it just looks like you're going through a slide lecture. Right. <clears throat> and then dozens of videos um showing every little step in detail so that people can do this anywhere that the, the first class was i had we had students in taiwan australia germany the uk norway mm -hmm. yeah oregon you know all over right. the place right. um, so there's so it's you know self-guided so you have to have some discipline to do the work mm -hmm. but then we're we meet um once a week um what I've been doing seems to be working well is meeting once a week with a set kind of a formal classroom situation where we, where I, I do a kind of formal presentation of specific topics and then do some talking about troubleshooting and then, uh, you know, have students talk about their own work or what they're mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. and then making an optional second meeting per week, kind of like office hours. It's like, like okay, I've got the, uh -huh. I'm here. Yeah. People can pop in if they have questions um, while yeah. they're working on stuff. And that, that seems to work pretty well. Right. And uh, people can find out about your workshops on your website. On my website. Which yep. is? It's amyrichardstudio.com. Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. And um, what kind of artwork are you making right now? So um, right now I'm, I'm delving into... Um, into some, some new marine forms and some old, I've got a pile of old gnarly oyster shells here. Uh -huh. And so I'm, I'm just kind of ramping up into uh, a series of, of trying to make some armatures and start casting onto those to see, see where that takes me. I've got a few, few different things. Um, uh -huh. What kind of uh, fiber are you, you think you're going to use? I'm using, um, I'm using flax at the moment. Uh-huh. So, um, four, four hour flax. Um, and where do you get your flax? So, um, I've been ordering the raw flax from carriage house and, mm -hmm. um, and I haven't tried the, the flax that they have. They now have in the sheep form in the sheep form, which is wonderful. Um, yeah. Um, have you used it? I have made a watermark in it and it was okay divine oh yeah. nice yeah yeah um drew matot kind of put it back on my radar we talked last year and he's over he's got his paper studio in germany now yeah. and um and he was telling me that they had it over there and i was so jealous because he you know they use it he said it just makes this beautiful paper they'll they'll add it in with you know with yeah what they're doing um with the with the cut rag and um and so yeah i was delighted to find it carriage house so that's that's next on my list is to order some of that so but right now I've got some Kozo, um, I've got some pieces in Kozo that I'm going to be doing in the next few weeks. And okay, uh, and different, I, I've got, I have like several projects going on at one yeah. time. Yeah, and I, I was looking at your website and noticed that you sell Kozo from your harvest. Oh, yes. So people can buy your yes. Kozo in different grades. Florida Kozo, yep. Florida Kozo. Yeah, I had an inquiry the other day about I have a, a student grade or grade B <laughs> COZO and it's um, I used to just dispose, you know, of it because I've been taught that, you know, you just want this primo, beautiful, right. light kind of butter colored fiber. And then I started looking at it and um, it's from COZO that we harvested in like some shaded areas where there was it was an understory and there was plants over it. And I kind of have this pet theory. I have no idea if it's accurate or not, uh -huh. but just, um, it just kind of depends, seems to depend where it's growing. And I, and I, and it kind of, I want to explore it more to find out because the Thai Kozo is the same color. The Thai Kozo that everybody buys from carriage house and around, mm -hmm. it's the same kind of caramel sand color. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it has to do with the soil and the, the, the sure. shade and or whatever. So, 
but I thought, well, there's this aesthetic. So I'm going to just make it available to people if they want to just, it's a perfect fiber to practice with or, right. or you may want that color. Um, but it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, it seems to be a decent quality or whatever, but then I have the, the, the other Kozo, the grade A is just this beautiful, mm, beautiful, mm-hmm. buttery um, Kozo. And then uh, I also sell the, what they call the green bark or the cherry Tory bark, the, the scrapings from, right. From the process. Um, so um, I've got a way where I, where I scrape my bark, where, where even the green discarded bark still has a decent amount of Kozo in it. Right. So that's another right. interesting thing to play with. Yeah. So for people who don't know about Kovo, Kozo, <laughs> take me, take me through just quickly the steps. So like you said, you went and you clear this area, right. you your own Kozo growing. You're cutting yes. certain lengths and diameters. Yeah. Just let's go through the right. process. Okay. So we've got, you know, so I have this plot here on our, in our front yard. Um, and then we, we locate during the year. It's, it's very easy to spot it. You can, yeah. I, I can spot those leaves at 50 miles an hour going down the road. And yeah, it's um, very distinctively, very distinctive. Um, although it has about three or four different leaf shapes. <laughs> That's another story. Uh-huh. But anyhow. Um, yeah. So we harvest um, the stems. We, we harvest it basically down to the ground almost, um, with like loppers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so we cut stems that are, uh, one to two inches in diameter, something like that. Um, I harvest it from even bigger trees that are here in my yard. I mean, this stuff grows crazy in Florida. I mean, we harvested it in February and it's already six feet tall. And, wow. and actually last May, and there's some of them that are already eight over 80 or 90 inches tall wow. that I cut last January. Yeah. Um, so cut them, bundle them all up. We, we have to, we cut off all the side branches and dispose of those. And so how, we just have these, how long are they about? Usually they're in Florida coast they're, they're eight or nine feet long. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I load the back of the car with all these sticks and, um, do you, are, you, are you aiming for a certain am, amount of sticks? Because you have to steam them right. soon. You can't let them dry out, right? So Right, right. Um, yeah, do you we, get as many as you can, or you just fill the back of the truck, or do you have any we, kind of... We get as many as we can. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, depending on where we're going and what, or what site we're harvesting or whatever. Right. So, um, so we get as many as we can. Um, and I can't, I don't have the... We'll post it too if you. Um, yeah. I did the math and figured out how many sticks you have to have um, to get one pound of fiber, oh, and it's uh-huh. it's um it's pretty intense. Yeah, <laughs> you have to harvest a lot of sticks yeah. to get one pound of fiber. But yeah. I, I've got that math done as part of my class, so I'll share that with you. Um, oh, cool. But yeah, so so you have all these sticks. We cut them down to size into a big steamer part pot. Uh, one of our son's friends left a beer keg in the backyard and for a year and I figured it was mine. So I had the top cut off. I use a, a beer keg as my steaming okay. pot. Yeah. It's stainless steel. Uh-huh. Um, so we steam the bark, steam the sticks, peel that, that bark off. And we're, so you, you have these beautiful yellow wood sticks to dry out and use those for firewood. And then the bark is, is um, it's three layers. It's this, beautiful kind of creamy, what they call white bark. And then there's an outer layer of green bark and then a brown bark on the outside. So, so the process is get it off the wooden stick, s- scrape that outer bark to where you just get down to that white bark, what they call the white bark. And then it's, then it's got to be cooked in a caustic solution. She's often soda ash mm-hmm. um, for several hours. And then, then it's hand beaten with wooden mallet to tease those fibers apart so that you can make paper from them and then put them in the vat with a, with a viscous solution. Um, what's, what they refer and, to as nary or formation aid. Uh-huh. Yeah. And form sheets. The form and sheets. so after you steam and strip and scrape the fiber, mm-hmm. um, you can store it at that point. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you so can, that's how you sell it or there's a couple of spots. There's a couple. Yeah. So you can, you can strip it off the woody core and then you're left with what's called black bark or, or unscraped bark. And so I, I have a bunch of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can buy it, you know, as unscraped bark, it's cheaper. Um, or you can buy just the, the, the very fiber that you're going to make paper with, which is the scraped bark or the white bark. And that's more expensive because I have to sit there and scrape all that right. stuff off for you. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk about your recommendations. So one of them is, um, this scraping tool and you also have a special way that you figured out how to do it. Yeah. Um, so the scraping tools, uh, you know, as most of us learn in the studio, sometimes random chance, I grabbed this tool that was handy. It's a, it's a, it's a bay scallop knife. We, we, uh, we dive for scallops over here in the summertime. Uh-huh. And, um, and so there's this little knife that's about five inches long and it has this little, how maybe it's eight inches total. Anyhow, the blade's about two or three inches long and it has this curve to it. Um, but I've just found that it's just a, a really handy tool for scraping the bark. Um, cause it's not too heavy. It's not too sharp, that kind of thing, especially for teaching. When I was, I was teaching this at university of Florida, I didn't, you know, wanted something that was easy yeah. to use. Yeah. So, and then, um, the, the, the kind of the scraping part, um, I call it more of a peeling process for me because it's uh-huh. different. And this is something that I did before I went to Iowa. I was processing all this Kozo reading every word of Tim Barrett's book and, and, um, and using your book, by the way, that was one of the things that the, the illustrations in there were super helpful okay. for, for steaming the steaming uh-huh. the Kozo and so forth. So it was kind of happened by accident. One day I was working in the studio and realized that I wasn't following the the protocol where the typical protocol is the green and black barks facing up and you scrape off the surface. Right. Well, I didn't even realize what I was doing. I was just in the studio and I started, I had it face up and Uh I had taken my knife and I was just, and I started scraping the white bark. Uh. Uh, I would take the knife and I would just kind of wiggle it and just kind of get underneath it. Like, like you, you should try to see listeners. You should see Amy's hands. She's okay. doing a great <laughs> description with her hands. Right. Okay. And yeah. So you, you're trying to peel, like you're trying to peel a, a sticker off of a yeah. you just bought or something. So, so I kind of get up underneath there and then get a little tough going. And then I take it, pick it up and then just peel it off. And it just, it just comes apart, like taking a splitting the backside of a band aid or something, you know, like peeling it off. Um, it's not always that clean, but yeah. it saves, it saves time. It seems faster to me. Um, and that, and I was doing it at Iowa, Tim Barrett walked by one day and he kind of did a double take. He said, what do you, you know, how are you doing that? You know? And he, um, so yeah, he was, I want to say something about that because these are little things that people figure out and share and papermaking is not such a huge field that all of this stuff is written down anywhere. And, I took a class with Rick Hungerford at the paper and book intensive, I don't know, close to 20 years ago. And he was, we were making Japanese paper and he had this way, he, so we were using unscraped uh, bark. We cooked that. Yeah. So we were, we were scraping it ourselves. So he only cooked it in soda ash uh, part way. So it was still pretty firm and he felt like scrape. I don't, I'm not a big Japanese paper maker, so I don't have a lot of experience, but he felt like scraping it at that point um, gave you more fiber. You lost less. And yeah. So there's so many different. Yeah. all kinds of different approaches. And that, I mean, that's the, that's the fun part. I, it can be confusing for a student because it's like, yeah. well, wait, he's doing it this way and you're doing it that way. You just basically have to look at, get all the information you can and then develop your, what works for you. But that's, that's a great idea. And, and he's probably right about that where you can get, yeah you, you lose yeah. less bark. And then my solution to that was, well, if I do it this way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm losing a little bit of that white bark. 
but I'm creating, I'm not throwing away or discarding this, this what's normally considered discarded bark because mm-hmm. it makes beautiful paper. Right. Right. It's this really soft kind of seafoam green and, and all those little p- bits of bark mm-hmm. in there. And mm-hmm. so I've, you know, so there's just different ways of, of doing things. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And let's talk about your uh, portable papermaking studio and some of the, the uh, unique elements you have in there. And I want to hear just like how, how it fits in your car or whatever, like the whole thing. <laughs> okay. I, I do need to, I'll find that picture because I have, I have a picture of the car. We have a Toyota matrix. And so it's like a little, those one of those little station wagons and it is loaded to the roof, but it's all in there. Uh Um, And then I, so, so yeah, I have one of those carts. It's a dolly that we, you know, a hand cart that we bought at one of the big box stores right? and where you can use it as a dolly or you can reconfigure it where it has a, a, a a flat portion to it. Okay. Does that make sense? you'll see when I, we see the picture, but yeah. So yeah, it's just, this ends up being a hand cart and I put a piece of plywood on the bottom and then I just, I configured, figured out all the, the best way to nest the different vats, one inside of one, another, you know, inside mm-hmm. of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of the things as a result of that, one of the, one of the things that I developed to go into a, a space where water, it was really important that we not get water everywhere to kind of contain or control the water. Is like, I started um, researching different containers um, and somehow ended up at a, a restaurant supply stores online. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a concern that, you know, these, these plastic, these black plastic vats that we, that we all use, um, I was alarmed one day when I bought some from one of the big box stores and there's this big red label saying, you know, warning this material causes, you know, has been known to cause cancer or something. Um, And I thought, well, that's not real good. I'm going and teaching people (laughs) to do paper making. This stuff is not, not real safe. So, so when I was kind of supplying my studio, I started researching it and found some pretty nice, alternatives at, at restaurant supplies that were food safe. They're so safe. You can store food in it. So that made mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. And then that led me to find these trays that are like three inches tall, like 18 by 24 in dimension, something like that. Um, Cause I kept trying to figure out how do I, what do I do where water isn't just running off the table everywhere. So, right. so, you know, we've all done it before where we kind of have a little shallow tray, but this was deep enough. Um, that contains the water. And then um, I had that plastic grid material that's used in overhead fluorescent lights, yeah. that plastic mm-hmm. grid that we use sometimes in the mold and decals as right. substrate. Um, so I cut those down to size. And then uh, Melissa J. Craig uh, opened my eyes to the all the uses of the uh, this half-inch poly or something like that. It's a foam insulation board that's sold at the big box stores. Mm-hmm. And um, it comes in four, but four foot by eight foot pieces. And it's, so it's high density styrofoam that they use for insulating houses and stuff. Super lightweight cuts really easily with a, with an exacto or an Ulfa knife or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I cut those down aside. So those are my couching boards. So it just works really well. It's lightweight. We're not lugging around these big, heavy wooden boards. Um, so I have the tray, the plastic grid to kind of keep the, the couching board out of the water. Right. And then my felts on top. And it works yeah. out beautifully because as people add more sheets, the water keeps draining, but it all drains into this tray. Um, and, and so then you can just tip the tray and pour the water out into yeah. the bucket. Right. Yeah, you can literally, even while you're working, I mean, once you have your, yeah. cause all the capillary action of the water, it's not going anywhere. These sheets right. with felts on them, you, know, you have to be careful that you don't dump them all out, but you can just tilt it and yeah. just drain it, mm-hmm. drain the water into a bucket um, or use a shop vac or whatever, but just picking it up and draining it works beautifully. So, so that was a, that was a major piece of figuring out how to do this kind of portable studio where I could go and take paper making to different venues where it might not have, because you can't always work outside. Um, 
Right. And you sent me a picture of that, that styrofoam board. Do you drill holes in it? I, I, it's a little, not necessary. It's, I found out that it's really not necessary, but it, Mm -hmm. it does help. It was just an idea for, for helping speed the the drainage Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, as I learned later, the only thing you got to be careful about is sometimes if you press it and you forget that the, somehow somewhere along the line, I pressed it on that styrofoam and I had all these little holes, little circles embedded in the paper. And I'm not really sure how that happened, but, um, but you can do that or not. But, um, but I just, I've, I use that styrofoam for all kinds of stuff, um, applications in the studio. So it just makes a great lightweight material because that's, I mean, most, most paper makers, um, usually end up with some sort of physical, (laughs) physical complaint from, from, uh, abusing our bodies because yeah. it's so labor intensive. It's heavy. Everything's yeah. heavy. So ergonomics, yeah. uh, as I get older, I'm becoming much more yeah. aware of how important ergonomics are. There's a, uh, I was reading some out of Tim Barrett's new book recently, and there's a great video made by Lynn Omley um, at the University of Iowa years ago. It's really fun because it's the imagery is really dated, but yeah, it's it's about the ergonomics of paper making, and I'll share that link with you as well. Oh, that'd um, be great. I know I think- that um, I worked at Dudonay Paper Mill when Lynn was there, and she was, and then she went to Iowa, and she I know she was thinking a lot about that, and Peter Thomas was as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to share that with people. Mm-hmm. And Super you, helpful. you also wanted to recommend Tim's new book. Oh yeah. Yeah. European I, paper making. European paper making. It's, oh, it's just amazing. The information in there. It's, um, yeah, it's just kind of like going back to grad school. again. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you, you learn, yeah. you learn it and then you learn it again and you just keep, I just keep revisiting it. And every time I read it, I see something different that I didn't catch before or that I didn't. Yeah. yeah it's just full of all the details. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. um, a- another thing recently that I've run into is um, Don Donald Farnsworth's. I mean, a lot of people probably already know about it. I I can't remember. It was last year or something when I stumbled across it, Magnolia Editions. He's got a bunch of just fantastic information for paper makers oh, on his yeah. website. Yeah. yeah. There's, so there's PDFs and then there's also you can purchase them if you want to. He allows you a way to uh, purchase a print a printed copy or whatever but he makes the PDFs available. Um, right. So and he, yeah, he wrote, he's been in the field for 40 years or something. And yeah, has written several little books on Japanese paper making yep. and Momigami yep. and his yep. wife is Japanese. He goes to Japan a lot. And, oh man. Um, yeah, yeah. And the most recent thing I saw, but I think maybe there's even more recent was um, how to determine the thickness of paper handmade paper because you know yes. all commercial papers are have uh, point size or gram weight and uh i haven't delved into it because <laughs> it's a little like mind-bending but he and brian queen worked on uh this article about how to apply that to paper handmade paper and how to figure out how much pulp you need to make certain number of sheets that are this gram weight, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. I, yeah. I haven't, I haven't worked my way through it, but I saw it and it's just, and you know, yeah. So there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that, that he's, that he's made available. That's just super, super helpful. So. Was there one more book? I'm not seeing it printed out, but I think you had one. There was, well, there was one it's, and it, it does, it's not paper making per se, but it's yeah. something that I've been struggling with. It's called deep work by Cal mm-hmm. Newport. Mm-hmm. I heard an interview with him on, on, uh, Oh, Shankar Vedantam's thing on NPR. Hidden and brain. also there's yeah. hidden brain. Thank you. And, um, and on uh, a Ted talk, this guy, he, he, um, he's done a bunch of research and delved into what's happening to us all as a result of technology. Mm-hmm. And so it's this double-edged sword where I'm, you know, I'm teaching online and it's making all these things possible for us, but he's also, he points out how it's altering our, our brain. Mm. <laughs> it's re it's rewiring our brain. And so mm-hmm. um, 
it's called deep work and it's, it's just really got some really great information about how to, you know, how to use technology as a tool and then leave it alone so you can get your creative work done. Uh huh. Um, oh, that sounds so, great. Yeah. So that's another one that's pretty interesting. That's, that's what I'm reading uh, lately anyways. Oh, I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Great. Well, what, how are you going to spend the rest of your day, Amy? Um, I've got some flax that I'm going to be making sheets with uh, uh-huh. using formation aid, making okay. translucent sheets. Cause <laughs> I want to play around with comparing that with using straight flax sheets and for sculptural applications. So see. do you mean you're going to um, pull them using the Japanese method? Yes. Versus gonna, the Western uh-huh. versus the Western. I'm going to put formation aid in the vat okay. and, and make um, translucent sheets. That's, I don't know if we have enough time for that, but just to, that's one other really wonderful thing that I, uh, Tim Barrett showed us in Iowa and he mentioned it in his book that, you know, you can use abaca or flax or some of those fibers with formation aid, you know, as an alternative to the COZO. It's just a great way to like maybe work out things before you go to all that trouble of cooking and beating. And for the mm-hmm. COZO, it's a way to, mm-hmm. to um, work through problems and, or just to, to maybe do material tests or, yeah. you know, maquettes yeah. or something like that. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty interesting how similar it is um, when you hold a two sheets up to light where you use flax or abaca with formation aid. Um, how similar it is to COZO? To COZO, yeah, yeah. with the translucency. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's kind of an alternative. And this is like only two hour flax. It's, it's an alternative to getting translucency with flax or abaca without having to put it in the beater for four or six hours. It's a way of, yeah, of using. Shorter beating time. And all of these have long fibers, so they, you can use the Japanese method. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. So, well, if you think about it, send me a photo of kind of a comparison. If it shows in a photo, and I'll post that too. Okay. Sounds good. All right, Amy. Well, it's great. Thanks for coming (laughs) on Paper Talk. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com to receive my e-newsletter. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps other people find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can find out more about them Subscribe to the series via iTunes and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. I'll talk to you soon.